Welcome to the On The Way podcast, a podcast exploring the deeper mysteries of life, faith and meaning. Uh, my name is Dom Fay, and uh, today we have the, the two regulars of the podcast joining us for a conversation. It's always good when it can just be the three of us for a, a bit of a change. Sue Wilton, good to have you here, Sue. It's great to be back again. And uh, Peter Catt, thank you for your time. Uh, you're very welcome. It's uh, wonderful to be part of this. Um, and today we are, uh, look, I guess we're, we're tackling one of the the biggest issues from every side that is seems to be going on at the moment, which is the, the notion of political correctness and the, I guess, the divide we do find ourselves in. Um, uh, I, I did pitch to, to Sue that, and I don't know if this will end up being the podcast title that people are listening to, but that I'd love to call this podcast Political Correctness Gone Mad, or even potentially Political Correctness Gone Mad, in inverted commas, Gone Mad, hmm. as if the phrase itself has perhaps yeah, I gone think, mad. I think that's where we're heading. <laughs> yeah. So that, that is what we're going to explore today, I guess. What is that phrase? What is the, the uh, fear behind it? Where is it coming from? And also maybe... Uh, unpack a little bit where this link between fear and conservatism and Christianity originated. Um, to, as a, maybe a starting point, Peter, what what do you think um, people who use the phrase political correctness gone mad, what do you think they mean by that phrase? I think on the whole, they're saying that life as they know it has been changing and, and they don't like... Um, what they see so at at christmas time for example people are are concerned that the word christmas has been replaced by holiday or season's greetings even though that was actually something written on christmas cards when i was a kid so that's hardly new but it has new meaning i think and the idea that that once upon a time we were cohesive, we all believed the same thing. There was a sort of a monoculture that kept us safe. And now because of political correctness, all of that's under attack. And so people grab hold of examples like the preschool that doesn't have a Christmas tree because it might upset a Muslim kid or something like that um, and see that that's eroding the thing that they hold precious mm. and then those sort of and there you know there are story there are places where that probably does happen and those things then become a meme and it becomes the archetypal story for how things are going down the tubes so i think i think that's sort of the i think that's what people are expressing when they say political correctness has gone mad we're not allowed we're not allowed to celebrate christmas anymore we're not allowed to do the things we used to do so it's perhaps this sort of like this fight between an uh, some group or people trying to perhaps rightly or wrongly take an empathetic stance a compassionate stance and others being scared of of the change and and perhaps what might be being lost do you do you think, Sue, that the fears that the people who say things like political correctness go mad, do you think their fears are valid in, in some way? Oh, look, I think everyone's had experience um, of, of feeling that they've said the wrong thing. Um, and hopefully not everyone, but many people have had the experience of being shamed a bit for saying the wrong thing. And so, yes, that, that part of it's really valid. Yet I think it's important to remember that that phrase political correctness comes out of it's actually no one says 
I'm part of the political correctness brigade. I want to be politically correct. It's actually the, in the, it's always cast as a negative. Oh, that's just political correctness about you know it, it's it's um, cast for for when we get it uh, for those who we see it as being imposed upon us. Okay, so it's seen as a negative or a thing. It started out as an ironic expression. Um, it's not part of a positive campaign that people are trying to align themselves with political correctness. But that doesn't change the fact that it exists in public consciousness and it plays out in a way um, when people are made to feel shame for when they've said something that has um, caused offence, whether, you know, often inadvertently and people are a little bit afraid and nervous. So on that level, I think there is some validity to the concerns. And I think, I, I mean, I suppose if you do see things changing, like, for example, your your kid's preschool doesn't have a Christmas tree or they're not allowed to sing Christmas carols anymore, or even maybe you get a letter sent home saying, um, I don't know, you no, no Christmas cards this year, please, or make sure there's nothing religious on them at least. You, can you in, in any way, Peter, uh, empathise with the, the parent who maybe feels like this is something important to me that, that I feel is being taken? Oh, absolutely. I, I think I think um, the preschools that ban uh, Christmas parties and Christmas trees are really just expressing a lack of imagination. I mean, I, I would I would think it would be much better to have Christmas, but also celebrate Buddha's birthday and talk to the kids about Eid and Ramadan and actually help children understand the breadth of the culture in which they live rather than trying to turn the whole thing into some sort of bland um, culture where the only thing that survives is is consumerism. Um, So so I I think the people who push back against that sort of stuff have have a legitimate uh, question to ask. Um, But as Sue says, there's a sense in which... uh, political correctness has now become this idea that there's a bunch of people out there who are imposing this on us or requiring it. Um, And that's when the argument becomes far more uh, difficult, I think, because then anything that people don't like, any change they don't like, becomes an expression of political correctness. So you're not allowed to tell a racist joke anymore, so that becomes an expression of political correctness. Um, so I think I think there's a it's a good idea for us to sit down and unpack the idea um, through th- these sort of conversations. So hopefully people will have other conversations in their own context. Mm. So often when someone says to me, um, you know, the, our political correctness is a problem, I, I will say to them, so what do you want to say that you feel you can't say? And my experience of uh, asking people that question is that they actually can't think of anything they're not allowed to say that um, they want to say. So there's this sort of this notion of this thing that's coming to get us, but the actual expression or the impact on their lives is zero. Mm. I remember, you know, it was only a few weeks ago, someone said to me, oh, political correctness has gone really mad. And I said, so what? What do you want to say that you fear uh, someone's going to prosecute you over? And the guy said, oh, don't know really. I just don't like the change. And they were his exact words, I don't like the change. And so political correctness has become this image of the thing that is causing change to happen.
And I wouldn't have thought this person was was a racist or a misogynist and was upset that, you know, nowadays if you say, if you tell a blonde joke, you're likely to have someone call you out. Um, He didn't seem to me to be that sort of person. So I... I, th- I think he was genuinely mystified that I'd asked him that question. So what do you, what is it that you want to say? And it does set up, a, I guess, a dualism where the only two positions you can take are either, you know, the joke is completely fine, just be okay with it, no one's, mm. you know, grow up a little bit, get a thicker skin, or yep. the alternate position of how dare you make that joke that's mm. so insensitive. Mm. And they're both very aggressive. Aggressive, yeah. But positions, what's the alternative? Well, the alternative is to is to point out to people, um, you know, if someone does tell a blonde joke, just to say to them, do you realise the effect that has on people's image of women and particularly of blondes in particular, and to and to help people understand that humour that is, and, and for Australians, this is this is actually a, is a big shift because for in Australia particularly, we've actually cr- constructed a whole uh, swathe of our humor based on denigrating people so you know when i grew up in the town i grew up the standard joke was about aboriginals every joke was about aboriginals and if it wasn't about aboriginals it was about women so it was about women drivers um you know and one level people can say oh that's all very harmless but it actually isn't because it's actually uh creating humor by dehumanizing people and if that's your best shot at being funny, then you really just need to um, you know, upskill a bit because it's, it's it's very simple ways to make fun of people. And you know, Donald Trump made um, fun of people who had cerebral palsy as part of his campaign, you know, and had all of those people laughing. But um, but the, then the risk is that the other side of it, you have someone like Hillary Clinton using the mm, word deplorables, deplorables exactly, to describe exactly. Donald Trump supporters, yeah, exactly. which just deepens the divide absolutely, and, and, absolutely. Im- and almost solidifies everything that's that right. they're arguing. That's right. Yeah, so calling people to account has to be done in a way that is trying to help them understand the implications of what they're doing rather than saying to them, you're a bad person yes, for yeah. doing that. I think too that it's important to recognise that you know the original definition of 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 being politically correct is actually avoiding things that would demean someone or be um, show prejudice or uh, take away rob them of dignity or be disrespectful. You know, so it's avoiding language that harms others. It, it was sort of sort of the idea behind it, and yet I think there's a whole lot of things hiding. Um, you know, the Donald Trump examples are good examples because. Um, you know, he can invoke political correctness. Um, and it was one, and, and most commentators actually recognise that that part of his language in the campaign was part of, of the way he came to victory. Um, and so, but it's not about, people didn't vote him in to anything to do with jokes. You know, it, 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 there were so many things that are hiding under that and people understand that it brings a whole swathe of, of ideologies that aren't always named. Um, some of them ben- are benign, but some of them aren't. Some of them are quite toxic and harmful, I think, that, that come under this swathe of political correctness. And I guess my interest in this conversation today is that we that kind of we open up, we expose some of that and just actually look at what do we actually mean mm. when, we, when we say this stuff? Or what are people meaning when they say that? And I think one thing that Peter's already said is that it's about change. 
Um, so what's going on? And if it's about change and if it's about unnamed fears, then, then maybe we need to have a look at the complexity of the picture rather than gathering it all under the swathe of political correctness and having that used as an other saying that's, that it's really under the banner of common sense. You know, and, and I think that's a dangerous idea when we think that anything to do with, you know, um, avoiding political correctness is just showing common sense um, is a big lie. Uh, and it, it's a big lie that hurts people. And I think we need to be very careful, careful with the way we equate those two ideas. That's interesting. So the common sense thing is uh, almost synonymous with, you know, when, when, when I guess political figures do call out, this is political correctness gone mad. You know, they're almost saying, where is the common sense? Come on. Like, that's almost what they're trying to invoke. Mm-hmm. Like, as if this is so obvious to, to anybody with a, a grain of common sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that does seem to be their supportive positions. Mm-hmm. Why, why do you think that is? Why, why do you think they have that, that position that it is common sense? Mm. Yeah, I, I think it, that plays into you know, people's party experience or that feeling of shame people might have had when they've, they've said something and it's been taken the wrong way. And so they think, oh, can't we all just relax and can't we accept and not judge one another? It's common sense to allow some things to, to just fly and not be mm. jumping on every phrase that we say. So it plays into that sort of everyday experience. But I think it's actually a mask. Sometimes it's intentional mask. Um, used very overtly to say this is common sense when really it's hi- it is hiding um, misogyny, it is hiding racism um, and allowing that free play under, you know, you can say common sense, it's almost a, a, a conversation stopper. You know, it's the, it's, the, it's the clincher for the argument. Oh, but that's yeah. just common sense. Um, as if we can get on being human together and uh, run society in certain ways because that's common sense without actually interrogating um, all of the, the, the underbelly of some of the things that are being invoked. It's interesting. I, uh, only a few weeks ago, uh, I, I have a, an Indian friend and I made uh, a joke that I thought in the moment was a not offensive joke, um, a, a, you know, not about her, but, but with her. And she did point out to me that, you know, she was uh, offended by the joke. And I remember in the moment, and this is why what I think must go through, because this is what I experienced. I imagine this is what people do experience in that moment that they are told what they've said is offensive or you can't say that or that's inappropriate now. You do feel a sense of the, your pride is damaged. You, feel, uh, you do feel a sense of a deep shame. I did feel that. I, I felt um, almost like I didn't know how to articulate what was going on. Just that, you know, and, and sometimes it's much easier to want to kick back at it than to humbly say, I got that really wrong. And you're right, I don't understand what it would... As a white male, I don't understand what it would be like to have your differences constantly pointed out. I don't understand that. But that that took me about <laughs> 20 minutes before I got to that stage. The first 20 minutes, I felt that mix of shame. I felt that mix of... There was brief anger of, I can do what I like, you know, that, that part of me pops up. And I think, you know, those parts, if you do feed and nurture them, perhaps is what leads to the well, I'm then going to take a stance that I can do what I like and this is political correctness gone mad. Do you know what I mean by that? Does that do, do you think that's, that's what is going through people in the, when this happens on a larger scale? Uh, certainly it takes, um, I think, what we're being called to in our time is, is a lot of deep listening and humility to mm. actually work out that maybe my point of view, if, if I wouldn't be offended by that, doesn't necessarily mean that what I said was not offensive. Yes. Yeah. You know, and um, it, it might need, you know, we just don't know other people's experiences. 
we don't know and and even those who come in and and are so angry about political experiences it would um, sorry political correctness it would be so easy to write them off and say oh that's that's just um, an ignorant agenda and yet I haven't I don't know their whole life experience and how they've got to that place there could be there's can be so many things going on for that person and what they understand by that phrase is completely different to my understanding you know we need to take the time to sit back and listen and I think occasionally there is a, a lack of empathy in a sense both ways that that the empathy back is you know you you just need to react to the a world where you don't have the privilege you're used to instead of realizing that change is you know one of the most terrifying things that that people have to wrestle with and that it is a you know a radically changing world um you know i remember what you mentioned there peter i remember in my primary school experience i'm only in my mid-20s but in my primary school experience asian jokes were were very common um and i remember being pulled up somewhere in middle school that some of the jokes me and my friends were making probably weren't appropriate and it Mm. had never occurred to me that 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 mightn't be appropriate that's right and so i can imagine Mm. you know if, if you have been in the position of you know the the particularly I think the the white male but the white person mm. over the past fifty years and you've seen how things have changed and how what maybe once seemed okay now is no longer that change would be disorienting, very disorientating and and then there's also this tendency for uh, an implied illumination on the part of the person who's doing the calling out. Um, to sort of suggest that they're the illuminated one and the other person's just got to catch up. Mm. And that then leads to the use of labelling of the other. So uh, you know, the person who tells the racist joke gets called a racist. And so their action then becomes associated with their person and their person gets denigrated. So instead of a more nuanced um gentle response saying um, have you ever considered that that might actually be an offensive joke so the focus is on the joke rather than the person there's this tendency as as voices raised to say that person is a racist or that person is a misogynist or and so we actually then equate the person with the thing we've taken exception to. So now we're taking exception to them. We've actually labelled them. We're doing a a reduction of their humanity. And um, no wonder then there is... How far do you have to push a person before they will push back, um, take exception to the fact that they're being called out? Um, And so the whole... The whole dynamic is is calling on us all to learn something about nonviolent behaviour, nonviolent practices. Uh, give people, in a sense, the capacity to change. Um, that people people are often open to um, hearing what it is like for the other person. So just like you went through with your friend, um, you, there was that process where you had the realization that. Uh, her life experience was very different and something that you thought was clever um, and and therefore effective was actually hurtful. But we actually, we actually have to create the space where we have those sort of conversations rather than labelling and demeaning. It's one of the reasons why I really... Whilst I go to lots of um, demonstrations... 
because they're important pieces of political public theatre, I am often dismayed at what is said at demonstrations. So you know, go to a refugee demonstration that denigrates the very personhood of Peter Dutton. He's never going to change if you say dreadful things about him as a person and dis- and dismiss him as a person. I used I remember going to a marriage equality rally years ago and people were slagging off at Campbell Newman who and I had to point out to them that the guy personally was actually a supporter. He was part of a government that wasn't but attacking him and telling him to do various things with parts of his anatomy to other parts of his anatomy was not going to actually have the guy even find you in conversation with him. And so there's a call on all of us to de-escalate so that we actually, through our common humanity, we can actually find a way forward. And so we have to we have we have to look at ourselves, see our own arrogance, our own capacity to see ourselves as the illuminated ones, because um, that does feed into that dynamic um, that we were talking about before the podcast of how it can seem like there's the elite who are smarter, brighter, more illuminated, who are helping the little people to discover um, what's best. And if we fall into that, then all of the stuff Sue's been talking about just has to manifest itself because people, if people feel denigrated and wasted and, and their life experience hasn't been appreciated, then why wouldn't they push back? The toxicity of that call-out culture is uh, something definitely worth touching on because I, I do think there is a sense in which um, ego can be found in being that illuminated one, as you mentioned there. And, and mm-hmm. this is my, my example with my friend. She didn't say, you know, it's 2018, you're such a racist, I can't believe... You know, mm-hmm. she shared her life story with me and that, that helped me to see it. Whereas I do have some friends who I've been in instances um, where they have taken offence on behalf of um, a, an oppressed person or a minority or whatever... It, when the the oppressed person in the minority has been standing right there and said, oh, no, no, it's okay. I realise this stuff's complex and hard. There's no need to take offence. Yeah. But you can find ego. You can find pride, can't you, in that I'm going to call you out and be this this warrior for, for social justice. Yeah, it is. I mean, human ego gets into everything, doesn't it? Yeah. You know, and it gets in, in, into, you know, self-righteous behaviour climbs into everything as well. Mm. Um, and I think what Peter was saying about creating spaces is so important. And I think where community groups used to have there used to be a more of a function of community to create spaces to dialogue on things there was a chance for you know there was there was kind of ways to adjudicate some of this stuff and instead it's kind of these days fallen to social media which is not a useful forum for for call out you know yeah, it yeah. actually becomes a witch hunt mm-hmm. um, you know and the problem with we all have this I'm sure on, on our social media pages you you tend to be in a nice echo chamber and so you can call out to your heart's content call out on someone and and you'll get all the affirmation. Everyone will jump mm. on there and agree with you. You might have one or two lone voices who may be lurking in the background, but you know, as social media is just ill-equipped to deal with this, with actually adjudicating or or working with where there has been offence. How do we actually respond to it? You know, just by the spectacular performance call out, which is what's happening. You know, uh, is is unhelpful in the extreme. Yes, it's seen as as wise or admirable to be the one 
standing up for justice and 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 calling out and um i suppose then the, the question is what what are we guided by are we guided by the ego or are we guided by genuine compassion because and this is because so you and i were chatting um before we recorded this podcast about this this whole phenomenon um of i guess where we find ourselves at the moment and how often it isn't compassion and and empathy that is guiding people in these conversations but it is either fear or it is ego or and and do, do you think that's really the the root of the problem uh, i i'd say it's part of it i think there's also history we we need to actually work out what you know we've got a long human story and there's symbols and things along the way that that some of these that we don't realize how deep we're tapping into our our history i i think um and and for us in discussing discussing this in a christian context this christianity has started to become equated with um a certain position mm. that um is um anti-political correctness you know that is complaining of political correctness gone mad and because and, and some of this i think even the the new atheist movement has contributed to this and if you go back to the 19th century this equating of um communism and godlessness and so when they see when, when there's this social movement that seems to be coming from the left it picks up some of the language of the new atheists um it, it brings with it a swathe of things whether we're looking at um uh, feminism, multiculturalism, you know, uh, a, a swathe of idea, and, but they start to be kind of equated with godlessness and uh, in people's minds. Now, that's often not articulated, but I, I still think it's present. So, yes, there is fear, but some of it's fear of things. So, you, you, people will see it as a loss of family values is another way it's expressed. Um, but I think this is tapping into quite a long, long history mm. um, where, of, 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 ide- of symbols, of ideologies, um, and, and, and people's fears tap into those. must be hard, I imagine, for you um, at times, Peter, because you are quite a vocal um, Christian leader, uh, I guess, you know, in, in many uh, social causes and, and these sorts of things. But you do, you know, when you, you put on... Your, your priest's uniform every day. You do. You are representative. You are a symbol of something that, as Sue has mentioned, is perceived to stand for conservatism and political correctness gone mad. And um, you know, is hand in hand with, I, I suppose, what some people might say, uh, movements that are trying to hold us back and take us back and pull us back rather than push us forward. Do you find that? Uh, I, I guess that um, tension of how you're perceived and. And why you have to ta- be perceived that way? Do you find that difficult to to deal with? Um, I, I think the the real difficulty I face on a regular basis is just making sure I don't get sucked into the binaries, um, the simplistic binaries, while at the same time um, holding fast to the idea that the world can be different and better, and that there are forces at work in the world that are holding that are holding us back and that are destroying people's lives and. Um, so for me, it's it's trying to articulate um, what I perceive as the call to justice and peacemaking um, in a way that isn't trying to drive wedges. And, and sometimes you know, one has to be part of um, movements that are very much part of a wedge. So trying trying to trying to add a different voice, say, to the refugee sector, which is highly polarised, 
a lot of emotion attached and we and we are trying to you know at the moment we're just we are trying to keep children safe or rescue children even that requires a fair bit of emotional energy and passion and and it's not just about saying oh can we talk about this it's actually calling for a specific change that needs to happen three months ago so you know there is this drive at the same time trying not to um make it all so concretized that there's no capacity to change so it's it's there's a lot of tightrope walking going on um and we're going to face the same thing with climate change mm. um you know we have to find ways to to be positive influences in these things that are, are divisive debates and and it's a it's a huge ask um and I, I, I think it comes back to spirituality. Um, last, one of my more recent sermons, I quoted what I regard as R.S. Thomas's last words because it's the last poem printed in his uncollected work, the, the uncollected poem. So it's the last, last poem that appears ever really got printed of his. And it, it, at the end, it, it, it's all about peacemaking. And he talks about how... Um, we have this deep desire for peace, but the only way that we can ever become peacemakers is to realize that um, it's peace, peace in our own mind and heart that allows us to work for peace. And so we actually have to do our own inner work. We have to, mm. have to, have to do meditation and worship and prayer and spiritual direction and and come face to face with our ego uh, in a way that is also friendly to ourselves because one of the things about you start talking about ego ego then becomes a problem uh, to be fixed or to be denigrated and if you start doing that then the ego goes hides <laughs> to protect itself rightly so and so there's all this capacity to be gentle with ourselves um, and I have to say, I find that one of the most effective ways uh, when I'm dealing with people who, who, if I can develop a bit of a sense of trust with people who hold very different views to me, um, exploring whether we are actually first and foremost being gentle with ourselves is often the way to open up a conversation about what's really going on. Because... It's that capacity to be gentle with ourselves that allows us to name our fears rather than just to defend that ourselves against that against which we're fearful. And so I think at the heart of this, I think one of the things the Christian faith has to offer is to help people do that inner work. In mm -hmm. a world that's so extroverted and all this, you know, Facebook yelling at each other and stuff. Inviting people into the space of self-reflection, I think, is one of the most powerful things we can do, even within our own tradition. It's, it's entering into that reflective space together that I think um, heals and transforms, and that's where the true, uh, il true illumination, in the sense of understanding the deeper purposes of God, come from. And it's not the illumination of superiority, but the illumination of understanding how we're all connected and how we're connected to the planet 
And it's when people discover that level of connectedness that things actually change and attitudes change. And so there's a huge work to be done. It is interesting that you, you talk about that, I guess, that inner reflection, because it does seem, and this is something um, that uh, is quite unusual when you think about it, that throughout history, with every big progressive movement in any way, um, people on both sides, leading both sides of, you know, the things should stay as they are or things should change, have identified as Christian. I remember um, learning about the abolition of slavery growing up and how, you know, the yes, it was a, a Christian movement and a Christian man who, you know, stood up against this, but it was Christians also who were saying we are entitled to keep slaves. And so Christianity has in some ways, and it's similar with, you know, Martin Luther King and then you have the KKK. You know, and there's this sort of this, this Christianity has been the bookends um, where it, it is on both sides um, arguing at itself with, uh, with, with this, this chasm in the middle. Now, how do you think it is just a, a without that self-reflection, do you think there is an inability to, to wrestle and grapple with all of this stuff? Do you think then, then from either side you just end up shouting? Is that what you would think the the major cause of that is, or is it something mm. deeper than that? Well, I think, it, well, I think it's, it's first and foremost lack of self-awareness. I just remember my own history where when I first, um, before, before I identified myself as a Christian, I took great delight in, uh, as an evolutionist, having fights with creationists. Uh, none of those conversations ever persuaded anyone to change. Um, I remember continuing with great delight um, those those arguments when I entered the Christian tent and sort of had that sense of being the illuminated evolutionary microbiologist who could argue from a standpoint of education and knowledge and common sense even um, <laughs> that creationism was wrong and I had I none of those again none of those in the, none of those arguments did I ever persuade anyone of anything. And even at the end of them, I didn't even feel particularly good about myself. So, you know, there's basically losses all around and nothing, no insights into the kingdom. And it's only really as I've done my own inner work that I've stopped having those fights. I've tried to have different conversations with people who hold the creationist view. Um, and and for me, it's the ongoing project of my inner work that is actually enabling me to be more and more effective, I think, as an advocate for social justice. And I guess that the the advocacy for social justice is that is that wedge that you're talking about before because there's there's some here we there is the we do a lot of we need to be doing the listening we need to doing the self reflection aware of our uh, ourselves what's going on for us and that's obviously an imperfect process but hopefully the Holy Spirit's in there too also helping us as we kind of muddle muddle along mm. but there's also that I think the wedge for me comes in recognizing that Christianity always has had and Jesus always had a, had a preferential treatment of the poor there is always um, that the gospel is always on the side of, of the marginalized and the oppressed um, and those who don't have a voice and that is where the wedge comes from for me that you can't that we, we listen but that we are also aware of that gospel imperative. It is like uh, there is something the deeply human though about this. Uh, when you even if even if what you had was not particularly fair to begin with, you had too much or whatever. Still, when you lose it, you will be 
you will be a bit like a tantruming toddler. And my, my one of my, my strongest memories of this was uh, when I was a kid, uh, mum gave um, m- myself and my two brothers uh, some chocolate for Christmas. It was uh, wrapped up and she made a mistake and accidentally put um, two in mine and one in, in both of my brothers. And so I opened it up and I had double as much, twice as much as, as both of them. And mum very quickly realized her mistake and went to take it off me. And I felt outraged. <laughs> now, there, I, I did not buy this chocolate. I did not earn it. Mm. it. It was a mistake that I was given it. And it was not fair in the context that I had it. But even then, I didn't mm. want to lose it. And I was going to fight to hold on to it. And I think that is something of an analogy that... that how often are people going through exactly that? That is a great parable. I'm going to use that. <laughs> that is absolutely spot on. That we that that we immediately uh, feel entitled to that which we have. Yes. Yeah. Even if we have gained it by mistake or at the expense of other people, mm. and and to lose it is to lose. As, well, it is to lose that to which you are entitled, mm. and and uh, that is certainly one of the shadow sides of what's going on in political correctness. Is you know, men are losing, men are losing something as women gain something, and given that you know that's the way it was, it does get that sort of this is the way God wants it to be gloss that goes with it. And this is the way God's ordered society to change it is to meddle. Um, for men to lose that thing is losing something to which they're entitled. And um, uh, of course, as one looks, experiences that one realizes men have also been given an incredible gift they're being set free from all sorts of stuff that has destroyed men's lives but but at fir- first look there is that sense of um, losing something mm. you know, being being the king of your own castle is a pretty tempting um, image of you know walking in you know, some of those some of those things we read in the 1950s uh, good wife guides about how to look after your husband you know, when he comes home, make sure his slippers are out and all that sort of you, you can understand why um, losing that would at first glance feel like you'd been ripped off of something that actually belonged to you. Yeah, whether you ever deserved it or <coughs> whether not. Whether you certainly didn't, wouldn't have deserved it. But, um, but it's still painful to lose. It's still painful to lose and... It's it's all predicated on complete injustice and persecution, and um, you know we know the stories of women house housewives in the fifties basically going crazy because they they were they were blamed for everything. You know, if their husband if their husband had an affair, they had to look at themselves as to what, why that had happened. If if um, you know dinner wasn't on the table, it was their fault. So there was that privileged position of the white male was produced at an incredible cost um, and that's the narrative that, uh, that the men need to hear is just how privileged they have been mm. um, without that being sort of used as a battering ram because they are being asked to give up something that they think is theirs and um that it that does require a process and it does require advocacy for justice and it's not something you can give up just because it's, it's not to be given up just if you feel like giving it up. You have to give it up. Mm. But how we help people 
and, and white people versus uh, indigenous people. Um, you know, for us to hear the story that we dispossessed a whole bunch of nations and that we have built what we've got on the backs of that robbery is a huge story for us to hear and we have to find ways for people to hear it but there's no choice mm. you know if, if if the indigenous people are going to flourish in this country and the wrongs are going to be righted um, things are going to have to change and white people are going to have to be able to say wow we benefited from this how do we make amends but taking people on that journey, it's not a if they if they feel like it. It's not. A, there's no choice in one sense. But another another way, you just can't yell at people and say you're a bunch of white racists or you're a misogynist. It's actually a very sophisticated process. But it ha- but it has to happen. It's not. This is not an option. Or you know, men can't maintain the privilege that they had in the 1950s. It's just those days are gone. Um, whether they like it or not. And whites can't maintain the privilege and the benefits of having exploited the indigenous people. But we've got to take people on the journey so that it doesn't just get dismissed as political correctness. And I think you can never embrace the gifts that are there without, which is mm. what you were alluding to mm. earlier, with you know, whether it's in um, relationships between men and women, what, what they're giving up may feel painful, but mm. what, uh, what actually is being given then mm. is the chance for much mutuality. Yeah, you yeah. Know, it's something that's mm. so much richer mm. um, and that is closer to, to the heart of, of human potential for what can be there in a relationship. You know, So that, that gift that's given back for um, in in telling, I, I really believe that because we don't, we're not honestly facing our history of of um, stealing land in Australia, of murder of Aboriginal people, of denial of their sovereignty in the country. Because we're not actually facing those stories, I actually think we're doing the country culturally immeasurable harm. We're walking around kind of with these lies and with the with the truth not told, and it's doing us so much damage. And if we can actually, yes, we do have to let go of the narratives of terra nullius. We do have to let go of, of narratives of, of supremacy and colonisation. And But when we let them go, there's a, a great gift there or, or that could be there for us in, in reconciliation and, and yeah. for an, a chance for a new page where Australia as a country could actually, in, in owning its past and seeing the, the and describing and telling the stories with open eyes, we can actually grow up as a country. And speaking about that, that rapid pace of change, as I mentioned, I am only, you know, in my mid-20s and I can vividly remember in primary school that we would, you know, act out Captain Cook plays and things like that you know and I know that that is not in their primary school curriculum any longer that 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 has you know that narrative that fundamental narrative of our country and our founding narrative you know for many years at least has changed in you know 20 years in 15 years um and that that sort of change of of a a base is quite well quite a scary and confronting thing and suddenly mm. people who felt proud are being told they should feel ashamed mm. and they feel angry about that and they feel like mm. what are you well you're taking something from me yep. but but that is the invitation isn't it that no if you if you listen and you engage with this and we are honest here there is a real gift and healing and unity that we can all partake in mm. is Absol- that true yeah absolutely and so yeah australia day is problematic mm. australia day 
In the fullness of time, Australia Day, as it is, the 26th of January, can't stay as Australia Day. But getting to the process where we understand that instead of it just being seen as politically correct, but as a fundamental need for this nation, as Sue says, to heal ourselves by coming to terms with our history, we have to find another day that won't be driven by the need to be politically correct, in inverted commas, but by the heartfelt desire for us to celebrate what it is to be Australian and working out that it isn't about Governor Philip arriving that wasn't that wasn't the foundational moment for Australia. There's yeah. there's something else that makes us Australia. Is it mm. the, is it is it when we uh, became a federated nation of colonies? The only downside of that is it happened on New Year's Day and we'd lose a public holiday. So we you know, <laughs> we'll, we'll never celebrate that. But in a sense, that's when Australia became Australia. Mm. Until then, we were a bunch of colonies who had varying degrees of cooperation. It is, uh, I suppose this is one of the, the key tenets of the, the Christian faith is this idea that inequality isn't working for anybody. Mm, that's exactly um, right. Mm. And I've just been reading the book Gods in Every Man, which uh, the, the author talks a lot about how um, the patriarchy was, was damaging men, has mm. been damaging men as well, because it makes them grow up having to be something. And, mm. and there is this idea that, well, we continue to live, you know, it's not like white Australia or white Australians are losing mm. Australia Day and they are suffering. It's actually this... this this untruth mm. is hurting them Absolutely. as well. It's hurting the common humanity. Absolutely. And so mm. it does need that sense of feeling. I also think this is true about climate change, by the way, the, the fear of losing privilege, because this is, mm. I don't know if this motivates much climate denial, but people are being told you're going to have to, you know, cut down on your use of air conditioners, planes, whatever, that these, these, mm. these luxuries are going to be taken from you. And the easiest kickback is to just, you know, kind of block your ears mm. and say no I mm. don't want to yeah. um, and again I think it's where the Christian faith particularly has something to offer because we actually um, we actually are pretty good at helping people um, mourn loss yes yeah and we are going to we have to lose certain parts of our lifestyle to again to be blessed by our gifts untold I mean, if we become more local again, for instance, and stop driving as much, and imagine the beauty of rediscovering what it is to live in a village, mm. um, for kids to learn how to play with their neighbours again, for us to be able to walk to shops. Um, you know, some of the, some of the stuff that is at the moment seen as really edgy, you know, Prince Charles's um, funding places that are developing around how far people can walk rather than the, the motor car. That's all seen as really edgy at the moment. But the, the people who end up living in those communities find that they've rediscovered the gift of connectedness. Uh, they understand what it is to live in a neighbourhood. They understand what it is to have the support of neighbours when they go through grief. The, that kids are being brought up again in a village situation so that kids have a whole bunch of adults who are role models instead of luck of the draw of having one or two parents and you know varying degrees of functionality and capacity <laughs> that used to be made up for in that village idea so you know we, we we will lose a lot of stuff that we think we really need but it's going to be replaced by other beautiful stuff and um and but again the christian faith has that capacity to say to people uh embrace your loss 
grieve your loss. Um, experience the loss. Loss is okay. Loss is real. Grief is a grief is a legitimate response. Let's uh, let's grieve what we are losing as so, a way to find yeah. new life. You know, it's sort of death, resurrection. It's all that sort of. Our, our meta-narrative, really. So rather than feeling ashamed, in a way, a, a white man does need to grieve the loss of that privilege and that that is actually a grief that needs to occur, potentially. Well, yeah, well, it, it is. Um, I was thinking more in terms of climate change because we like our lifestyle. Yes. But, but yeah, I, I guess for many men, there is that sense of losing their what is their current identity, like as the father figure, the strong one, the provider. Um, losing, losing those images, um, maybe experiencing the grief of losing those images, but then rediscovering the fact that you don't actually have to be that strong and brave, and you don't have to kill yourself. You know, because you know, the rate of male suicide tells us it ain't working. Um, rediscovering and uh, discovering that um, as a as a partnership in a relationship that you're actually stronger because you actually share life and that you don't have to be the strong one and that you have the gift of tears and that you actually have the gift of being a real human being rather than the king or the rule you know all of that stuff that is so so destructive um by all means grieve it because because you are losing what you had and who you were but you're discovering who you really are and what you really have and you know I, I, I just think it's been great in the last 30 years to look at the way men have learned how to cry and embrace each other and you know when I was a kid the only form of physical contact between men socially was the handshake they never ever embraced each other and they never cried mm. And now, you know, I just think men have become human. What a gift. But if, if part of that is giving up and grieving, you, you actually have to go through that process to sometimes to get to the new place. So then, so Sue, what do you think, I guess coming full circle in this conversation, what do you think the, the, the root of this problem is? I mean, I know that's a heavy, that's a broad question to ask, but... But if we're talking about, you know, um, change and, and loss of privilege, loss of the way things were, we're talking about, you know, people on both sides, I guess, one side being scared of losing what they had, the other side being scared of offending and feeling ashamed. Um, when we're looking at where we are in history right now, socially, what, what is, do you think, the, the core problem? Uh, I mean, I, I think it's not possible to really sum that up in a sentence because I do think there are things like the history, the things that I alluded to before that are tapping into this. But I, I do think there's a huge part of judgment of one another, um, the actual people's experience of of judgment and then the reaction of, of being judged and the, the, the fight back that happens then. If they feel that they are being judged as ignorant or feel that they, um, that they are being judged by society as useless or not having a place, not being able to get a job. Mm. Um, you know, so all of that is about self-worth and coming down to who, who I feel I am as a human being. And so we cling on to things um, that will we'll try to, to shore that up. Um, and yet the, the, the problem is uh, that we are, you know, as, as Christians, that we, we've got to always be on the alert for, um, we can never get complacent about how... 
Christianity can get cosy with self-interest and greed um, and empire um, and apathy. And that's all, all through Scripture and the, and the Hebrew Scriptures as well. When you look, there's so many stories of, of um, the Israelites uh, you know, th- being called out by the prophets. And then they go through this process of, of grieving when things are taken from them. You know, um, but I, I think they're always what the, the founding narrative, I guess, if you're going to the, car, the core of this, is connection between human beings and how I feel disconnected by the way things are changing um, and how I'm longing to reconnect and, I don't, and, and how um, my worth as a human being um, feels threatened um, by some of the social narratives. So then as we, we find ourselves in this um, political correctness gone mad era, Peter, and you know, there, there is change, there is loss, there is ego, there is all of these things we have discussed. What is the call to, to each of us in the midst of it? I think it, it is about being sensitive to each other and if people claim that something is politically correct or political correctness gone mad, maybe to engage in an open conversation about it rather than a, oh, you're just a twit sort of response. Um, so, you know, that question I asked that guy, you know, so what is it What is it that you don't can't say? Um I thought that was a helpful mm. way to into a conversation. I wasn't saying uh, you can say. I wasn't saying you can say anything you like. I said, "So what is it?" And it it opened the way for us to actually have some sense of well, there's something to talk about here. Um, so I was asking a, a question, open question, because I really I was genuinely interested to try and work out what it was that was causing such distress, and I think. I think people are feeling pressured and stressed, so I think we need to find ways to be engaged in opening that up rather than closing it down or dismissing people. I think it's about being gentle with each other so that we can be gentle and hopefully learn how to be gentle with ourselves and detach our egos from things we say. And if uh, if next Christmas I get accidentally given two chocolates <laughs> and my brothers only get one and I'm angry about losing my second chocolate, what would you say to me? Oh, next Christmas, I know, Dom, you'll look at it and say you've got two and you'll break it in half and you'll give <laughs> half to each of your brothers so that they end up with one and a half each and you end up with one. Yeah, well, <laughs> I'm sure that will happen and, uh, and my family would be laughing a lot right now at the improbability of that, but you never know. Miracles can happen. Well, this has been a, a very enlightening conversation thank you so much uh sue and peter um as always and uh we will be back with another episode of the podcast shortly